must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Poen, and of course, as always, I'm joined by my other co-host, F. Scott Veal, and unfortunately, our third co-host, Stephanie Wyrock, was unable to join us for this episode, as for this episode, I am actually live from Chicago, Illinois, back in my home state of Illinois at Entropy Physiotherapy and Wellness, taking Ben Cormack's course called Functional Therapeutic Movement. And I actually have the honor of welcoming Ben Cormack himself to the show today. And for those who are not aware, Ben Cormack owns and runs Corkinetic, which is in the UK. And it is based around an understanding of modern movement, pain, and neurosciences to give a person-centered approach to rehabilitation and physical training within a strong evidence-based framework. So Ben, for our listeners comprised of various healthcare providers who perhaps are not aware, do you think you could give our listeners kind of some background about who you are and about your journey in regards to kind of movement, exercise, pain science, and kind of how you've progressed since you've started. Yeah, we can definitely go with that. I feel a little bit like I meant to rap with the microphone here, but I'll just, I'll just give you some background. Um, yeah, so I've been, my background um, is mainly musculoskeletal therapy. Um, I uh, went to school way back when, 97, um, qualified 2000. Um, since then, I've done some uh, rehab-based masters and um, you know, various other things along the way. Um, so I'd say um, a lot of what I've done has always been um, pretty exercise-based. Um, I have a personal trainer qualification as well. Uh, originally, actually, um, one of the things that I worked in was professional sport. And I think I always gravitated towards the kind of rehab side of it you know, rather than the manual side of it type of things. And I used to do a lot of kind of player rehab and things like that. Um, that's in kind of uh, pro- professional football in the UK. Um, done a lot of consulting in, the, in those kind of fields as well. Um, for me, though, I think the journey I've taken more maybe over the last 10 years. And I think one of the things for me that I, I started to think about movement and motor control and somehow that led me to talk more about the brain. And then suddenly the talking, thinking more about the brain kind of has led me into a bit more thinking about pain. Um, and along the way, pain has helped me transition away from the brain and start to think a little bit more about people um, and a little bit more like about people who have pain and, have, and, and move. Um, and, and that's what really uh, I think is important for me now, you know, the whole idea of knowing more about what motivates people um, to, to move and to exercise or how pain demotivates people and how we can re-motivate them and get them going again. But really for me, it, you know, my transition has been from sport to thinking more about the anatomy and then thinking more about the kind of neuroanatomy and then just saying, well, actually, maybe the most important thing we have going on here is thinking about the person doing these things. Um, And maybe where I'm at now, it is much more about, um, I don't like to say chronic pain. I don't, you know, I see people of all varieties, but certainly I probably see more challenging cases with, with more persisting elements uh, and that's kind of where I'm at. But that's what I think excites me the most. I find the most challenging. I think that's really valuable because I think that just that perspective and that transition is very common among, I know, a lot of physical therapists as well. 
you know, my question is for you is that, you know, with a lot of, this is kind of also hitting a lot of newer clinicians, maybe even new students for that matter who are in school. What are some of the, and I realize this is going to be a big loaded question and you're like, I could go on forever on this one. So I get that. But, you know, what are some of the most important pearls that you would kind of say in regards to pain, exercise, movement, and really just people that you think all providers really need to be aware of that's not commonly taught in physio programs? You know, and I, I, you, as you point out, I think we're hitting a big demographic. So not just physio programs. I think we need to look at all healthcare providers. Um, I think that's, you know, and I think we need to be more joined up as healthcare providers. You know, I don't, I don't see why people should do different things. You know, this profession does this and this profession does that. If we look at the science and the evidence, that's where we should be following. It should direct us all, not, you know, I do this, so it's, I'm immune to this stuff, you know. But, so what are my pearls? Um, that makes me sound like I could potentially be profound. So we're going to see what happens. I might be profound. I can't promise it. But I think for me, the pearls has to be uh, that you're working with a person. You don't get taught that, you're, that, that, that what we're doing is we're working with a person. You don't have a back walk-in to be fixed. You know, you're actually dealing with a person. And I actually enjoy the interaction. I like that. I don't want to be treating a back. I don't care about that. You know, I want to be interacting with a person. I want to make them feel good. I want to feel good about making them feel good. I want our interactions to be a positive thing, you know, bi-directional thing. So I think what we mostly need to do is, is understand that there's lots we don't know, but there are things that we can control. And so the things we can control um, and the things that I think make treatment most successful are often not the treatment itself, but potentially understanding we're dealing with human beings and that we need human skills. So human skills are one of the big things that's not taught. And it might be that context is a really important part of whether exercise works or manual therapy works or whatever. And it might be our ability to have human skills is the difference between something working and not working. The thing in the middle, you know, I talk about on my course, the donut and the hole. Um, which is kind of the little bit and the big bit. The donut's the big bit, the hole's the little bit, right? And if we look at exercise, the little bit in the middle is the exercise itself and the exercise parameters. The donut is all the other stuff, the adherence, the motivation, the, the, the understanding, all these other factors. And if we're going to teach anything, I think it's sometimes the particulars of what we're doing aren't as important as how we frame it, how we deal with people, how we understand them, their motivations, their goals, their intrinsic drivers, things that actually um, make the difference. So I could give someone an exercise to do, but they may not do it because it means nothing to them. You know, the same way you play a sport because it means something to you or you go and do an activity because you enjoy it. You know, I'm just going to give you some random thing that you don't care a damn about and you're not going to do it. You're not going to get involved. You're not going to be there in it. So it may not do much for you. So hopefully what we can do is say we can take the best evidence treatment. We can take the best way of applying it. But also with that, we can create the best context and we can be patient driven as well. So that's where the world of evidence based medicine, I think, means meets the human is that if we can combine those two things, understand that evidence is cold and sometimes meaningless and then we can take the best of that and put it with the meaningful stuff, the stuff that makes people tick. And I think we're going to have a great combination. Yeah, Ben, that's a really great take and, and a perfect transition into my next question. We're going from humanizing healthcare into the cold, hard evidence. But uh, in your videos and some prior interviews, you, you talked about a few plausible mechanisms for how exercise really influences pain. And 
you know, this is an area that you mentioned is still rather unclear, but has there been any new emerging evidence that has really helped clarify how exercise influences pain? So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's work by people like Catherine Sluka. You've got work by people like Kelly Norgal. Um, and I think that if we're going to look at mechanisms um, for pain, particularly, it's the same mechanisms that are probably in play in manual therapy. You know, we have endogenous pain modulation systems. There would be no difference why they would work differently for exercise versus manual therapy. You know, so again, that can be context driven. It could be feedback driven. Um, you know, aerobic exercise can do it. Strength exercise can do it. Feeling good about exercise could probably do it. You know, so I would say mechanistically, there's lots of mechanisms. Um, but uh, when we talk about mechanisms, I think there's different things that we're looking at. I think one thing would be chemical mechanisms and endogenous opioids and serotonin and, you know, um, cannabinoids and all these other things that, you know, have these kind of pain modulating factors. Um, but there also might be other mechanisms like going to the gym, maybe getting out of my house and de-stressing me. So we could say that's a mechanism of the HPA axis or whatever. I'll be honest, mechanisms don't get me going as much as they used to get me going. I kind of, you know, I think mechanisms are, are interesting, but I'm more interested in the effect more than anything because I don't know the mechanism. I'm never likely to know the mechanism. So for me, if there is a mechanism, it happens by it getting done. So if you don't do it, there is no mechanism of action. So how do we improve that stuff for me is the most important things these days. You know, I could sit here and talk about um, all of these different, you know, NMDA and GABA and, you know, uptakes and reuptakes and whatever you want to talk about. But I think sometimes we're missing the point. We're looking at the, 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 the wood, not the trees or the trees, not the wood. I can never remember how that one works, you know, and it doesn't matter. So I, I like to take a bit of a less of a reductionist kind of view of these things. So mechanistically, we could have descending inhibition. We could have changes in blood flow. We could have stress mechanisms. You know, I could have, you know, could it be strength? Could it be range? All of these things are kind of secondary to me. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't know if that's a bit harsh of me these days. Have I become nihilistic? I've become like a philosophical nightmare. Who is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, we need so. that. We need that point of view sometimes, Ben. I'm telling you, man, to move the needle forward. That's exactly the kind of thinking we need. Well, and then sometimes it's a matter of are we focusing on the right stuff, or should we bother focusing on certain things rather than others? Like, where's the line of what's when it's appropriate to focus on and when it's not? You know. So I think from that perspective, we have people who are great at that. You have people, you know, researching pain mechanisms. I named a couple. You've got people like Melissa Farmer, a good friend of mine over here in Chicago, working a lot with kind of pain mechanisms. And you'll go out for, for dinner and drinks and like, it just blows my mind. They're, they're just really smart. Sometimes for me, I think clinically, where am I at with that? You know, so different people operate, not at different levels, because that makes it sound like if you know more about mechanisms, that's better. People just offer, operate in different zones. You know, and people, op some people operate in a clinical zone and that's great. Some people operate in a research zone and that's great. I don't see it as a hierarchical, you know, I don't want to see it as hierarchical because what that means is, you know, we're saying clinical is less good and research is better. That's not true. We need people who disseminate in information on social media. We need people who create research. We need people who apply it clinically. We need people who teach weekend courses or, or university and everyone has their own skills in different areas. We need to be collaborative. And I think a lot of the time we are hierarchical and put people up on pedestals. Um, and I think everyone has their role to play.
No, I agree. I think that's a good point. And, you know, kind of to bring it back to the clinical world, just because I know that's something, at least for my realm right now, that's where I'm predominantly in. And I know many others listening are, are as well. And something that I've, at least I've always struggled with in general is regarding dosing, you know, and dosing activity, dosing movement, depending on what we're trying to do. And especially for the individual from injury, from, persist, from persisting pain, and there's many other complicating variables that go on that. And I guess my big question to you is, what would your rec- top recommendations be for a practitioner in regards to dosing, activity, or movement? So the idea of titration, I think we'd call that technically. Um, so really, from, from my perspective, dosing is very, very difficult. It's not something that you will always get right first time. How do you know how someone's going to react? You know, we've talked about humans are complex, they're non-linear, right? So what you feed into them doesn't always come out proportionally at the other end. And I don't mean, you know, digestively. Um, you know, I think it's important that we realize people are complex and non-linear. Um, so for me, it's about trying to understand where is this person at? And what I mean by that is... Um, what's their kind of sensitivity level? So I might go back to my training, which was Maitland-based. You know, we're looking at sin analysis, sensitivity, irritability. What's in their history? What's in their subjective? And from that, I might say, well, this person may need a little bit more, a little bit less. You know, could we say, well, if I bend down to pick up a feather, my back hurts for six weeks. You know, we're going to say, well, that's pretty sensitive and irritable. That's an extreme example, but I'm just being, I'm just being an extreme Brit. You know, so then that might lead me to my dosage. And I'm, I, but I think one of the things that I always really talk about is the role of education in this. I'm not likely to get it right first time. I might piss you off. You know, not, well, I suppose I might piss you off in uh, multiple ways, but my, it's my terminology I often use with patients for flare ups, you know, just because it brings us on a level. Um, and I think that, you know, I just want them to know that it's an experiment, that I don't always know that I'm going to get it right. I'm going to do, I'm going to use my clinical reasoning to, to think, you know, what's the level of dosing they need in terms of volume or in terms of frequency or in terms of intensity, set reps time, et cetera. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get that right. I'm going to do my best way of doing that. And I call that a minimal effective dose. I'm going to go for the minimal, not the maximal, because I want to minimize flares. I can build up as we go along. Certainly what I'm trying to do um, is say, I don't know what, what's good, exactly going to happen here. But we're going to think, if it does go wrong, how are we going to deal with that? And that might be about knowledge and education um, and give people their own self-efficacy, their own skills that they can um, be able to kind of progress and regress for themselves. Um, you know, what could you do if, you, you know, if, it's, if it doesn't have a, a, a big effect on you? If you don't, you know, feel like it's having much of an effect, could I increase the dosage? If it flares me up, could I decrease the dosage? How can you do that yourself? But the key is, it's, it's uncertainty, isn't it? And we need to be comfortable with that. We don't know, and we're not likely to get it right first time. We inform the patient of that. We give them the skills to be able to self-manage regression progression. Yeah, that's a really good point, Ben. And, and speaking of education, you know, with our podcast focusing mainly on education, you know, and realizing that there are so many variables to consider, uh, you know, belief systems, expectations, uh, psychological irritability, sensitivity to the nervous system, possible potential peripheral drivers, uh, psychosocial factors, and, and many, many more. When educating patients on exercise, pain, and movement, what are really the biggest tips to consider um, when we're looking at trying to utilize the biopsychosocial model? It might come back to this kind of the question that we talked about before. We have all these mechanisms and we have this complex neuroscience. Um, from my perspective, when we come into education, there's some key things I'm thinking about. Who is the person I'm educating? 
it's not, you know, I think we get to a point now whereby we've got these canned responses that we can give people. We get those on cards or, you know, out off the internet and things like that. So for me, I'm thinking, who am I giving it to firstly? What's their health literacy like? What's their knowledge like? How much do they give a shit about what I'm telling them? Do they need or want it? So for me, one of the biggest messages is always, I think, does it actually relate to the person? How does it explain their experience? So does my education actually relate to the person or is it just education? How does it explain what they're experiencing? You know, because if it doesn't, what, what, what is it? What's it doing? It's just more information, isn't it? Content versus context, right? Well, I think it's not versus. I think content has to reflect context. You see what I'm saying? It's not one versus the other. It's the integration of the two. So it's not, it, it, we're not thinking, you know, we, we have to think about what I'm doing within the context. And I think often we get caught up in the content. It's about the content. You know, these canned responses of, you know, pain is an alarm and this, that and the other, which is fine. Look, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, does that explain my patient's experience? So it may be, and I always talk about relevant, relevance versus prevalence when it comes back to things that happen in, the, in, you know, like structure and pain, for example. And I think it's a similar kind of thing that, you know, what, what's the relevance of the information that I'm giving you? Does it relate to you? Does it explain your experience? Does it move me forward? How do I know how pain education moves us forward? I don't. What's how, what are we measuring? You know, so are we measuring knowledge about pain? That would be the wrong metric for me. I think mostly what I'm thinking about is how am I, how is this information explaining your experience? How is it likely to change your future behavior? Those are the two things I'm thinking about. And if, it, if what I'm giving you isn't likely to do that, then I'm just not going to give it. But if I do give it, it's going to relate to your story and having an effect in your change in behavior, right? So that might be as simple as hurt doesn't equal harm. And that's going to influence you to get out there and move your body more. And we know that guidelines tell us that being active is a good thing in back pain. It might be your belief structure that's limiting you. It might be a healthcare professional who's turned around and told you you shouldn't move your back. And it's my job to delimit you through information sometimes, but it's picking the right information and it's picking the context. Yeah, I think that's very powerful. And I think at least for myself, I think that's an error that I have made very early on. As soon as I took teaching people about pain from Adrian Lowe's MedBridge course, I thought, oh, I just got to go in and explain it just like that every time. Man, I could not have been more mistaken on that. And I learned the hard way. And, you know, realizing that that's how we learn through failure at times. And I guess my next big thing, Ben, then going on that note is then, you know, what have been the most influential lessons that you've learned through experience and failure in regards to communicating, educating patients, and not even that, but other healthcare providers on this too? Wow, have you got time for me to go through all my mistakes? I don't think we've got that kind of time, buddy. We know I'm we'd be here for quite a while. It's it's a hard question. You've hit me, you put me on the spot now, right? So I've made I've made lots of mistakes and I probably continue to make um lots of mistakes. What would be a big mistake that I've made? Um certainly I think I've made positive mistakes and I've made negative mistakes. Um I think the let's look at the idea of a mistake in general. I think that you only have a mistake if you don't learn from it. So I've been down lots of wrong roads and I probably still go down lots of wrong roads, but I think you can only truly call them mistakes um, if you don't learn from them. So I would prefer to maybe call them learning experiences. You know, and I've been down every road going biomechanics, this pain science, all these different things. Um, but I would say I've spent thousands upon thousands on continuing education. Would I ever say that it wasn't money well spent? Well, no. 
it was good. It was worth spending because it leads me to this point now. Um, so it leads me through those learning experiences. But yeah, I don't know if we should view mistakes. I think a mistake maybe is never learning, never changing. And I'd like to think along the way that I've evolved. It maybe sound like I haven't made any mistakes. I have. I've just learned from them. You know, so yeah, let's, let's say failure is a good thing. So maybe sometimes I've believed in my own ability too much. I haven't pushed patients along quick enough. I've thought that, you know, maybe a bit of a God complex. Um, maybe that could be a mistake sometimes. But yeah, look, I, I think, we sh- I think my, uh, the biggest takeaway from mistakes is that we'll always make them. Uh, we shouldn't be afraid of them, but they're only really, truly bad if we repeat them and we keep on going with them. You put me on the spot. I didn't answer that very well. I've just caught, taught a course this weekend, so my brain is a little fried. So, so yeah. <laughs> no, good, good points, Ben. All good points. Um, all right. If you could create your own physio program and the sky is the limit, there's no restricting barriers, what would your ideal physio program look like? Yeah, again, great question. I want to move away from the idea again of a physio program. Again, I, I think that we, we should look at healthcare as healthcare. You know, whether that be, I don't know, there's so many different people out there. And actually, I think when we look at um, healthcare in a broader sense, why do people go to see alternative healthcare? Sometimes because they haven't got enough out of traditional healthcare. So I think we should bring these people into the, into the, into the points as well. I think we create too much division between things. So should we talk about our ideal healthcare program? I think that should be, I think we should think about it being inclusive. Certainly, I think there should be strong factors that look at things like motivational interviewing, that we should be taught how to listen. We should be taught how to communicate. Um, We should be taught how to be optimistic and positive. Uh, There should certainly be more exercise basis in there. Um, Definitely learn more about pain. We should be happy to be uncertain. I think how we test people should probably change. You know, I think there should be less emphasis on skills. I think we should have more uncertainty. Um, Maybe that leads to less uncertainty in other ways. So I'm just trying to think here about, you know, what would our our ideal situation be? And I certainly think that there potentially isn't enough realism. If, you know, school doesn't provide enough realism, but maybe that's why we go on placements and, and what have you. But do you know what healthcare does badly? I've, I've got, I know what I want. Healthcare does, healthcare education doesn't evolve. So if I wanted to say one thing, it maybe wouldn't be that it's just about, because I can't define content. Let's say I'm not, let's not define content. Let's say healthcare education should evolve with the changing face of what we have in, in terms of information. So the one key about healthcare is about evolution. What does healthcare education do badly? Evolve. It, it just doesn't evolve. And that evolution halts people's evolution. And so therefore, I don't know if we can talk about specifics. Specifics should change. So I guess this is going to be a big question, but why do you feel that we're not evolving? Uh, you know, I, I think partly that, um, you know, healthcare education is a huge leviathan. It's like, you know, turn, it's like trying to turn the Titanic, isn't it? You know, that, that there's, it's so much involved with it. Um, that sometimes it's not nimble and agile, you know, it's like a big business versus, you know, I run some educational stuff, but I, I change my slides at like every five minutes because I can, because I'm nimble, I'm agile, I'm just one guy, um, you know, so I can do that. Whereas healthcare doesn't always do that. You know, who's driving it? I think a lot of the time in, in universities and things, there isn't always a driver that there's lots of people working there, but I don't know if there's always direction. 
So you need direction. You need someone who gives a shit who's going to turn around and say, this is what we want to do. Whereas, you know, and sometimes that doesn't happen. People reach a level of expertise and they've learned it. That's where they're at. And they don't always grow. Give, I'm not, I don't want to run down healthcare education. That's, that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm saying it can happen like that. Of course, there's some places that are fantastic with brilliant people. Um, that's just not always. But maybe you get brilliant people that can't beat the system. And sometimes there's huge systems in place, right? In the UK, we've got the NHS. Here, you've got your healthcare system. Education is its own system. And maybe it's about the system, not always about the people. So sometimes that's the issue that we're, you know, that they're, that, that they're rolling the way they roll and overcoming the system is very difficult from an individual perspective, you know, maybe that's one of the problems. So then with that, Ben, then we usually like to ask this question at the end of every single episode, because we're always just so curious what everyone's thoughts are. And, and the question is, if you could change either one aspect of healthcare or healthcare education that you haven't mentioned already, or if you want to reiterate a further point that you think is the best, that's, that's totally fine. But if you could change one point, either about healthcare or healthcare education, which aspect would you choose and how would you do it? I think for where I'm at at the moment, and, and this may change and I might go full circle and everything might change and, you know, everything we thought we knew isn't anymore and that's very likely to happen, right? You know, I, I just think it needs to be more people focused. For, for so long, I think we're focused on the treatment, the mob or the exercise or, or, or the mechanism. And what we need to come back to now is maybe saying, you know, it's, it's maybe not about that. Um, and I think there were some great doctors back in the 80s, Osler was a great doctor back in the uh, 19th century in the UK. And he said things like, you know, people don't, um, you know, people don't care. Or they don't care unless you know that you care. But, you know, you know it's very much doctoring and, and, and therapists were about people. You know, it was about treating people. You, in the UK, years ago, you used to have a family doctor who knew your mum, who knew your dad. He, would, he was a part of the community. And now it's not like that. And the more scientific we've got, and the more we've got, you know, the minutia. And then actually now we realize that physio or osteo or chiro or whatever is more based around a people again, that sometimes we need to come back out. So anyway, I don't want the pendulum to swing too far or it's swinging and hitting me in the face. I don't know. Right. But one of the things I think that maybe where we're going to rest in the middle is finding that medium, that happy ground whereby, you know, we've got the science and we've got the the, the humanistic aspect as well, that we, we know that we're dealing with joints and nerves and bones and ligaments and tendons, but we also know that they're redundant in, in, the, in the bigger picture, you know, that they're not these isolated things that just exist on their own. Um, and, and I think that's what I would really like to see, you know, and I think there's some great people doing that, much smarter people than me doing that. And I'm probably following their lead. You know, you've got some, you know, wonderful people out there kind of driving those things. You like your Peter O'Sullivan's and, and those guys and, and, you know, you, you've got to tip your hat to them. So for me, I just think it's coming away from just making everything so goddamn medical you know, and just, and just saying, well, we, there's a, there is a medical aspect, no doubt. Um, but it's not the most important thing and it hasn't proved to be the most successful thing. Yeah. Great points, Ben. You know, for our audience who'd like to maybe follow up with you or has any other questions, where can people find you online and on social media? So I've got a website. Um, it's www.cor-kinetic.com. Um, corkinetic.com. I'm on social media as Core Kinetic um, on on Facebook as Ben Cormack, um, 
yeah, so if you want to go along, I, I probably talk too much, um, say some silly stuff, uh, but you know, sometimes people like it and it resonates with them. Um, yeah, so look, I, 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 I love the conversation. I find social media helps me sharpen my reasoning skills, um, you know, helps me interact and be influenced by other people. Um, often I'll have social media discussions and come away and say, actually, Ben, you were wrong there. You need to update your, your shizzle, you know, so, uh, social media is a great place to learn. So if you want to come and have an argument on social media, no, I'm joking. <laughs> if you want to come and, uh, at any time, I'm always, it's, it's just a great place to be able to share information and, and get your message across and, and listen to other people's messages as well. So, you know, all of the usual platforms, really, you can maybe in Instagram, you get lots of naked pictures of me. If you can take that, you know, no, mate, oh, those ones might've been taken down by Instagram. I don't know. They might, there seems to be this censoring thing that goes on. I keep posting them. They keep taking them off. It's like cat and mouse. Oh, well, thanks so much for your time, Ben. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, Extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.